Good evening, everyone. Welcome to this evening's public lecture. My name is uh, Robin Mansell. I'm Deputy Director and Provost, Provost of the LSE. I'm also a professor in New Media and the Internet in the Department of Media and Communications. So I have a direct interest in some of the things we'll hear about tonight. It's a great honor for me to, to welcome Paul Mason to the LSE. Paul is the author of Post-Capitalism, A Guide to Our Future, which I hope is one of the reasons why you're all here, is to buy a copy, and the economics editor of Channel, Channel 4 News. Some of his earlier books include Meltdown, The End of the Age of Greed, which he published in 2009, and Why It's Kicking Off Everywhere, The New Global Revolutions, 2012. Our world is in the process of seismic change. He asks questions like, how can we emerge from the crisis with a fair and more equal society? Information technology and information systems, the Internet of Things, are all at the heart of the changes, changes that are driven by capitalism. But with his tendency to drive the value of much of what we make towards zero, as argued by Jeremy Rifkin and others, capitalism has the potential to destroy markets and private ownership. The question is, who will... This how will this complex adaptive system evolve? How will society be organized in the future? Who will do what? The state? The masses civil society? And how do we address global problems such as the environment and inequality? These are big questions. These are important questions. These are some of the questions that Paul is going to address. Just a couple of administrative comments. For Twitter users in the audience, you can see the hashtag down there on the, on the right-hand side. Can all of you please put your phones on silent now? Thank you. This evening's event is being recorded and will be made available as a podcast, subject to technical difficulties. After the lecture, there'll be a chance for you to ask questions of Paul. And as you saw when you were coming in, there's a book sale outside the theater, and Paul will sign your books up here on the stage. So if you've bought a book, you can bring it up here afterwards. So please join me in welcoming Paul Mason to deliver his lecture entitled Post-Capitalism, A Guide to Our Future. Thank you. Thank you. Right. Just let me get my clicker organized. Well, Thank you. And uh, thanks for inviting me to the LSE. Um, I always like to hear my distinctly non-professional econo economics voice here in this, uh, this uh, kind of hallowed uh, building, especially this one. Um, and apologies as well for the postponement of the original lecture, which was meant to be in September, which I had to postpone because of the Greek election. So, right, let me just do one other thing. Just test my clicker. Does clicker work? Clicking work? Yeah, it does. Thank you. Right. Yeah, so that's me on Twitter, and that's the hashtag. So in 1991, the Nobel Prize winner Herbert Simon conducted a thought experiment. He asked, what would the economy look like to Martians? And what he came up with was this. He said, look, the Martians would see a bunch of organizations represented by green blobs, and a set of market transactions represented by red lines. The, he also, because 
his obsession was organizations, what makes organizations transmit market signals internally. He said there'd be a set of blue lines inside the organization, which is the hierarchical diagram. You all know the, the, the organogram, the power structure of organizations. But basically, let's park that as an issue for a minute and, and concentrate on the two main things. He said... Look, wherever they looked, the Martians would see, whether it was Soviet Russia or capitalist America, organizations would be the dominant feature of the landscape. A message sent back home describing the scene, Simon wrote, would speak of large green areas interconnected by red lines. It would not likely speak of, quotes, a network of red lines connecting green spots. So the paper was designed as a critique of the then new behavioral microeconomics, where the question was being asked in all seriousness, as Ronald Coase asked it um, theoretically, why do firms and states even exist when markets are so efficient that everything could be organized via the red lines, the transactions? Simon's saying, no, the world is mainly organizational. But at first sight, the diagram is missing a category, because where are the human beings? Simon was actually using human beings, in this case, as a unit of measurement. He says in the paper, the blobs are big because, and the lines thin because human beings spend most of their economic time in organizations and not in markets. I think if we bear this model in mind, simple though it is, it's not a bad way of telling the story of what happened between 1999 and now. So in 1991, when the paper was written, and now. So the first thing is, organizations break up. They outsource. States privatize things. More and more, small organizations are seen, and therefore more and more, of the red lines. This is just my inter artistic interpretation. I don't think Simon actually wrote, drew the... the, the you know, Nobel laureates didn't draw pictures uh, back then. Um, <clears throat> and of course, some people, some people on the bottom end of those uh, blue lines we saw earlier, they, they become green blobs in their own right. You get, you get millions of self-employed people in the neoliberal era. So, and people spend more of their economic time consuming individually both products, services, and financial services. And as the internet takes off, they begin to consume them from each other, not simply from the big blobs, the, <coughs> the businesses. And people begin to transact more with a certain kind of blob called a bank. Uh, they transact with not just their bank, but with Wonga, with Bright House, with RBS, with their credit card provider, their auto loan provider, their student loan provider. That's when neoliberalism takes off. But then the first of two weird things happens. Around the year 2000, and this is not illustrated here on my map, you have to imagine the amount of red on the map really going crazy because... In the five years before the financial crisis, which begins in 2007-8, the global money supply expands from 27 trillion to 70 trillion, uh, way in excess of any economic growth uh, that one could imagine taking place in that five years, boom time though it was. And at this point, I think the Martian economists on board the ship say, you know what, Captain, one of these green blobs is going to explode. And the captain says, 
you know, tell me which one. And they, they don't have uh, historic hindsight, so they don't know. Boom, up goes Lehman Brothers, AIG. Uh, five investment banks become three. Uh, the world goes into crisis. I want to stop the, to the system falling apart. What does the world do? Well, the biggest blobs, the states in the world, the, the organizations called states, um, adopt the survival tactic of expanding the money supply even more. They expand the amount of money in the world even more by printing $12 trillion in quantitative easing money between now and then. And I think the Martian captain then says, look, this is a mess. They keep doing the same thing over and over again. They keep expanding credit against the real economy. It keeps blowing up. Let's go home. <laughs> but the ship has an anthropologist. And the anthropologist says, what about the yellow lines? And all the economists and all the graduates of the Martian School of Economics say, Ooh, we don't care about yellow lines. What do, you, what do you mean? Well, says the anthropologist, there's a millions of yellow lines beginning to appear down on Earth, and what these represent are new kinds of connections and new kinds of organizations. What's going on in these yellow lines, says the anthropologist, is transactions not involving money. And the blobs seem to be organizations that don't really exist, either to make a profit or, in some cases, even to transact money at all. They seem to be producing things for free. And the, here's the interesting thing. The yellow can be used to replace any color or shape on the map. So they produce stuff for free and exchange it with other people. That's a yellow line instead of a red line. But when they do this, they also interact differently. So they use networks to do this. And we don't know, here on this Martian ship, whether, to, whether, whether the yellow line is simply... Replacing the red line, the transaction, or the blue line, the organizational diagram. We don't know. Uh, give me an example, says the captain. Well, 27,000 people are producing something called Wikipedia. And almost every country, every other blob in the map, we know because we can track their IP addresses, is transacting with this Wikipedia thing. The only thing is, everything it produces is free. Right, says the captain, um, what's the value of Wikipedia? We don't know. It doesn't have a value because it's simply a subtraction from the red bit. We can know what that is because somebody's worked it out. Three billion a year lost revenue to the advertising industry because Wikipedia doesn't take ads. That's one thing we do know. Right, says the Martian captain, let's hang around for a bit. So... What happens next depends on how we understand two things. What is wrong with neoliberalism, what is wrong with the economic story and system I've just described, and what to do about the yellow lines. I, what to do about the non-market, non-hierarchical, non-managed forms of production that have begun to emerge in the niches and hollows of capitalism. The first problem is easy. Neoliberalism is broken. You bring in fiat money, 1973, you de-link money from precious metal and from real economic activity, and it's really good. You can, for a long time, smooth out the cycle. You can smooth out business cycles. You can dub it the Goldilocks economy, neither hot nor cold. And 
It works for a bit. Credit expands, derivatives expand, financial complexity goes stratospheric. But because you've also done something else, it has an end point. And that something else is to defeat and atomize organized labor. So you, you, you dissolve and reduce the bargaining power of wage labor. What's the result? Well, in the USA, the male median hourly wage stagnates from, 2000, from, from I'm sorry, 1973 to 2008. It goes up a bit under Clinton, down a bit under Bush. It stagnates. Now, other countries did better, but for the poorest, in general, for this entire period, for the poorest half of the workforce, wages fall. And neoliberalism's founding promise to the developed workforce of the world was you're going to have less power. Many of you will have less income and you'll be more dependent, probably on the state. Uh, but don't get used to that. Um, but once we've kind of reduced your bargaining power, reduced your social power, destroyed your communities, destroyed your social cohesion, there is the credit card, the auto loan, the payday loan, the student loan. There is a way to be relatively okay, but it involves taking part in the credit system. And where's the problem? You can't expand credit forever, even though asset price inflation has its own spiral, its own logic. You know, the, the rich guy with the wine collection buys uh, you know, a luxury apartment on Vauxhall Bridge. Yeah, you can do that, but credit cannot expand forever against a static or falling income base. And so you, every bubble that takes off bursts. You get the Asian crisis, you get dot-com, you get Lehman Brothers. And I think we're going to have another one, but I don't know when it is. Uh, it's my, my rule of thumb for this, having been a journalist all the way through all of those crises I just described, including the Asian one, my rule of thumb is whenever somebody who knows nothing about economics is on the phone buying stuff on their credit card that is a speculative asset, I generally think that's going to be the top of the boom. Or when, when your colleagues urge each other to get into the market for that speculative asset uh, while knowing nothing about it, that another, that's another metric I, I often use. And I'm beginning to hear both of those, so uh, watch out. Um, <laughs> The neoliberal solution to the crisis is always to expand the money supply, to cheapen credit, suppress wage bargaining some more, reduce the welfare state, uh, destroy the company pension system, at the same time as extending the implicit guarantee from the state to all finance institutions while allowing all non-financial institutions to go to the wall, including strategically important steelworks that build your own nuclear submarines. That's the market but unfortunately it doesn't work for banks. That's neoliberalism's response. And why is it pernicious beyond all other reasons? Because of moral, political, uh, social effects. I think it's pernicious because it actually prevents us from innovating. The result of weakening labour's bargaining power is that entrepreneurs don't have to innovate high productivity solutions if there's a cheap labour solution to the problem they're trying to solve. You see, when I got my first car and it got dirty, I used to take it to something called a car wash. And in those days, in the Keynesian era that nobody likes, a car wash was, believe it or not, a machine. And you used to put your pound in and it would wash your car automatically. How can eight guys with rags undercut that machine? Ask yourself. 
walk along the suburbs of London and watch what they do. Uh, they can undercut it because they're often precarious workers with very uh, precarious status even in the country they're working in, working for less than the minimum wage. That's why they can do it. That's neoliberalism. If you like it, you're welcome to it. But the problem is, it does not unleash, it does not facilitate the third industrial revolution that we ought to be going through. Though we're now at a point where, as Fry and Osborne tell us in their 2013 research for the Oxford Martin School, 47% of all jobs in America could be quickly automated, starting with office admin and retail. We don't automate. We hold conferences about robots and AI and machine learning, but we don't actually do much about it. What we do is create millions and millions of low-skilled, low-pay jobs that don't need to exist. Bullshit jobs, as the anthropologist David Graeber calls them. But these boom-bust cycles are not a steady state. The first bust in 2000 wipes out most of the company, company pension system. The second one, because the banks have to be bailed out, cripples many states with debt and takes a chunk out of the welfare state. The next one, which may be years ahead of us, but, but if we're really unlucky, unlucky it, it not, uh, will take a chunk out of people's savings, as per Cyprus and as was threatened to the Greeks. Bail-ins are the next solution because bailouts are over, because states are crippled with debt. So my fear, and I, 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 I address this in the book, my fear is that neoliberalism will end in a way that everybody else tries to head for the exit. Everybody tries to head for the exit at once, and the world deglobalizes, faced with the stresses I've just described. And given the choice, I would rather have globalization than neoliberalism. The Keynesian playbook says you could dismantle neoliberalism by empowering workers, attacking financialization and limiting it, raising wages, growing the welfare state, re-regulating business and finance, disincentivizing low-wage, eight guys in a rag, uh, car washes, low social responsibility businesses. And I think you can, but the problem is these are only palliative measures. They're only palliative measures. And here's why. You have to understand the special nature of information technology and then when you do, I think you begin to understand the long-term signals the credit system is giving us and the long-term problems that capitalism faces beyond the mere, the mere problem that neoliberalism doesn't work. So the short-term signal the credit system is saying to us is, hey guys, you know, you've expanded the money supply much faster than real economic activity, you deregulated complex finance, you made workers dependent on credit instead of wages, and even houses and Uber shares cannot go on rising forever, and they keep snapping back to their real basis, which is always the real economy. But the longer-term signal is, hey, guys, information technology is creating forms of eco economic life where there is no monetary value being generated where there is not enough work to go around and where the promise implicit in all credit systems, which is more value in future to pay the interest accumulating on the capital you've borrowed now, might not be fulfilled. If I'm right, creating a more regulated neo-Keynesian and even a green capitalism or an entrepreneurial state, as Mariana Mazzucato argues, doesn't solve that strategic problem. You have to explore what a transition might look like 
beyond an economy based on states and markets. The Oxford Professor of Information Philosophy, Luciano Floridi, writes, the information society has been brought about by the fastest growing technology in history. No previous generation has ever been exposed to such an extraordinary acceleration of technical power over reality. And as I look at you in the audience and see most of you, many of you from the LSE or, or associated colleges, young and, and, and in the first quarter probably of, of your lives, let's hope, you know, it is amazing to think that that is the story of your generation. I don't think it's hyperbole either. I think Luciano Floridi puts it exactly right. You have accumulated greater power over reality than any other generation. And that in itself should tell us that information technology is different. Before exploring how, though, I think we should reiterate something that Floridi himself insists on. Information is physical. The founder of cybernetics, Norbert Wiener, uh, the, uh, the um, polymath, uh, early writer on information theory, said, information is information, not matter or energy, and no materialism that doesn't admit that can survive, says Wiener. I, I don't agree with that. I think there is no information without representation, and representation does require, albeit tiny, amounts of matter and energy. And sure, information can have dynamics different than the dynamics of matter and energy, but the information layer of the world is physical. So I don't like the word cyber or virt virtual or even immaterial, which is the French, the, uh, the French uh, favourite word for the, for, for the information problem. Because information is doing something radical to the material world. I argue, and I'm not the only one to argue, it is corroding the price system. It was Paul Romer in 1990 who stated the obvious. Information goods are different. If I smoke one inch of a cigarette and you smoke the next inch of that cigarette, we can't both smoke the same inch of the cigarette even though we're sharing the cigarette and even if it's one of those kind of cigarettes that you share. <laughs> uh, likewise, we can't both park our car in the same parking lot Physical goods are, in economic terms, rival. But information goods, says Roma, are non-rival and intrinsically non-rival. I can listen to an MP3 track at the same time as you can. I can read an article on the Guardian website without degrading it for your use. I can take the same digital mock-up of a Boeing 787 to two separate factories and build an identical plane using the same processes because the computer can do it. Information goods can be reproduced many times over with amounts of energy, matter, and therefore work so small that it looks like they are immaterial. So digital information is naturally abundant. In a way, physical goods are not. Information, as Stuart Brand, the hippie guru of the 1970s, once said, wants to be free. So what happens, tell me this, London School of Economics, if the reproduction cost of something is close to zero, under com conditions of competition and private ownership, its market price should fall close to zero over time. It is this so-called zero, zero marginal cost effect that underpins the whole information revolution, but it's not easily either accepted or understood. Why? Well, there is a way to make digital goods retain their price. 
The only way to make an MP3 track cost money is to get a good information lawyer and extend the copyright into eternity so that even when the world has blown up and disintegrated into atoms, Sony Pictures will still own the rights to, to Diamonds Are Forever. Uh, that's what you do. And or build a physical system for conveying the information uh, which incentivizes paying for the information rather than getting it for free, a.k.a. Apple Incorporated. But maintaining prices using lawyers and walled gardens and technological tie-ins uh, can't work forever. Um, and in any case, it's not really capitalism. Capitalism has to be granular. Capitalism's economic dynamics have to arise spontaneously out of the commodity itself, out of how people buy and sell things spontaneously before thinking about lawyers or special technologies. That's the thing, actually, that Marxism and marginalism share. They share that view of what capitalism is, a spontaneous, objective process involving price. Tech monopolies built on short-term technical advantage, heavy use of patents to, uh, to make that which is cheap dearer should fail and should fall, says Economics 101. And it's happening. Once it was effectively challenged by competitors, Apple's 95% dominance in digital music was eroded by the sharing services. The result is falling price, not great if you're a music artist. The Information is Beautiful website um, has calculated that a signed solo music artist would have to get 1,800 plays on iTunes to earn the minimum wage for one track, um, but on Spotify, 1.1 million. You can see the problem. Uh, that once competition entered uh, that world, prices fell. And you know what the actual lawful price of a track is going to be, uh, and it's going to be lo lower than the 1.1 million implies. So this near-zero uh, reproduction cost effect is not just a, a phenomenon, however, in online music. It's collapsing the price of physical things, whose information content is high. Bandwidth, storage, processing power have DNA sequencing have all collapsed in price close to exponentially over the last 10 to 15 years. The consultancy Deloitte tells us that this is because, quote, we're experiencing rapid advances in the innovations built on top of these core, quote, unquote, exponential technologies. The current pace, says Deloitte, of technological advance is unprecedented in history, uh, says Deloitte, uh, and shows no, stein, no signs of stabilising as other historical technological innovations, such as, for example, electricity, eventually did. I hope you count yourselves quite lucky to be alive when a quite serious and sort of money-making, you know, uh, non-blue-sky non uh, firm like Deloitte can write a paragraph like that. Because if it is true, then we're in an amazing period. The problem is, of course, neither Deloitte nor anybody else has any idea how to value this in exponential impact. Economics is rooted in the concept of scarcity. There is nothing economic that is not scarce, says Walras in the founding document of the marginalist revolution. The market impact of cheapening products can be measured in, in the so-called yeah, su consumer surplus. Uh, so on a societal basis, the consumer su surplus is the short-term advantage consumers are getting if their wages are falling, but slower than the cost of basic necessities are falling. 
sure, the consumer can get some of the upside of that, but that doesn't capture the whole effect. The OECD admits this in the first uh, major study of the economics of information carried out uh, in 2013. The OECD writes, while the Internet's impact on market transactions and value added has been undoubtedly far-reaching, its effect on non-market transactions is even more profound. Non-market interactions on the Internet are broadly characterised by the absence of a price and market clearing mechanism. OECD, copyright, not Paul Mason, crazy economics journalist. So what are these expanded non-market interactions doing? I think they're reducing capitalism's ability to make the big 50-year adaptations that long cycle theory tells us it ought to be doing. On any version of long wave theory, whether it's Kondratiev, Schumpeter, Carlotta Perez, we are overdue a technologically driven takeoff. The rapid and complete automation of everything can't happen because there's no high-value synthesis between higher-value work, higher wages, and higher-cost consumer goods, because information corrodes the value bit of all those propositions. Not everywhere, not for everybody, but tendentially. So if we describe industrial capitalism as a complex and adaptive system, then the, the thing that the, the sort of the, the, the response to me and those who think like me, which is people have predicted before capitalism is going to crash and burn, yeah, they have, but one can admit it has always adapted through this high value synthesis, the creation of new needs, new skills, higher wages. Um, if information is doing what I think it is, then it's undermining the ability of the system to make such an adaptation. So the most important impact of infotech is to make things that were expensive, cheap or free, to cascade that effect over into the physical world and to dissolve the price mechanism and to make accountancy more like guesswork. Society's short-term response is to suppress competition and the price mechanism by allowing and creating giant technology monopolies in which there is no big four per sector, there's only a big one, competing with each other at the margins, if at all. And, of course, through strengthened information property law. But that solution can't last. The second big thing information is doing is blurring the distinction between work and, wor work and life, work and leisure, and delinking work time from wages. So the salariat, we all know... Those of you who are in the Salariat, some of you probably not yet in the Salariat. It's a great life. You get on a plane to Brussels at 7am. You sit elbow to elbow with other fellow Salariat members trying to type into Excel or PowerPoint. Uh, if it was a factory, you're sitting so close together, it would be closed down. Uh, but of course, it is a factory. Everybody's working. And yet nobody has asked our fellow workers, uh, what time did you start? Because we haven't started. We just haven't stopped. Uh, that is our life. Uh, no one asks us where, where work begins and leisure doesn't, because we work to targets, not to sequential processes. As a result, the link between hours and wages are already broken at the top. Now, at the bottom of the pay scale, there are, in London, walk outside, fast food workers who will have been exhorted to smile, 
to be cheerful, to touch each other playfully as they work, and of course be nice to you. And indeed, they will be exhorting, exhorting each other to do that at their morning meeting at 8am tomorrow. Walk past, you'll see them having the meeting, because they know that a secret shopper can walk into there any time and cancel the bonus of the entire shift if somebody doesn't smile. My dad's generation, if we were told to touch each other, would not have responded quite so much in the same way. But we can get away with this because of what's happening to the relationship between work, life, work, hours. The blurring of work and life and detachment of work from wages, I argue, is the result of a society where modular and target-driven work is the norm. It's quite different from the past 200 years of industrial capitalism. And in the process, it's, it's even producing a new kind of human being just as quickly as the factory system did. It only took about 30 years for the factory system to produce the classic worker and workers' culture between, 1880 and about 19, about, between 1780 and about 1810. It only took till 1817, in fact, for the British factory workforce to rebel, having been newly created. So a workforce with low loyalty, weak ties, skilled at uploading knowledge into their brains and then discarding that knowledge as soon as necessary. A population with multiple personalities and with much of their selves now externalised onto devices. That's a new kind of human being. The third thing information does is destroys organisational hierarchies and makes ownership less important. So as soon as we could build virtual Utopian communities from basic bulletin boards to 3D second life, we did. That's because the, the barriers to entry for collective action have fallen. We could swarm around an objective, be it a software project, a documentary, a minicab, the minicab needs of a certain city, a street protest at the upcoming COP21. It can all be achieved with minimal organisational commitment to each other, nor ideological coherence. We swarm rather than hierarchize. So we live in an age where, after 200 years of our hierarchy, being the most, in which hierarchy was the most effective form of organization at work and in society, instead, the network is. And let's consider why. Peter Drucker, the management theorist, wrote in his last book that one of the big weaknesses of economics was our disinterest, our lack of interest in what goes on at work. From, I think he says, from... Uh, Aristotle to Marx, nobody cares about what actually goes on at work. I am obsessed with what actually goes on at work, and I, get the, I am privileged enough to be able to walk into certain workplaces and film them. So, look, in the old world, for, on a production line, for me to do my work, you have to turn up. You're, you're there, I'm here, the product comes along. We need to work sequentially, we need to turn up. It's logical to pay us through the work time. In a video design house today, there's often a whiteboard with post-it notes on. And teams will wander up from their football game, you know, football game, or their guitar session, solve a problem, write down the, the, the solution on a post-it note, stick it up there, and then somebody else will take it over. It's a bit like a computer game. You can you, you work your way through a series of quests until you can get no longer, leave it, and go and do something else. Modularity. It's a big change in, in the world of work. Once you get modular work plus reliable communications, you can then do what? Something big. You can disaggregate the company. Outsourcing is not in it. You can take the company and almost abolish it and turn it into a network-style interaction. In the physical world, here's another thing information does. Standards, tools, and skills used to be 
all separate. So the 1950s, a press operative enters the factory armed with his ruler to measure the fine tolerances on the metal parts he's making, and he, that's, his, that's his standards. Then he's got the tools, the lathe, the, the drill, the, the things he uses to, to make the metal. And finally, the skill and knowledge. Today, the tools of engineering are virtual. CATIA, the software package you use to, to man virtually manufacture aeroplanes or factories themselves, what is it? Is it a tool? Is it a standard? Is it a skill? We don't really care because tools, standards and skills are really all intermingled in the digital world. And we know one thing, though, about CATIA and every other big information product that if somebody somewhere in the world discovers either a flaw in it or makes an improvement to it then that flaw will have been corrected or that improvement implemented on every iteration of that program in the world by 9 a.m. tomorrow morning. Um, so what? So knowledge is becoming social. Not just the free social knowledge embodied in something like Wikipedia or open source projects but, but the knowledge essential to do production and services and exchange. Digital information means that regardless of IP and commercial secrecy, innovations do have a tendency to spill over quickly across economic life, much more so than in the analog world. Another thing information does is to make physical things very efficient. So if you do virtual manufacturing, instead of over-the-wall engineering where the design is passed from a design shop to a manufacturing plant, this is what happens. A massive reduction in defects during the prototyping process and a massively greater level of assurance for the product. An engineer who worked on the tail fin of the Tornado fighter bomber told me that when they designed it, these are postdoctoral physicists, they tested 12 different stress loads on it with their calculators and slide rules. And when they designed the Typhoon, its replacement, and this is at the other end of this guy's career, he said they did 186 million caseloads on the same kind of thing. So the airliner above our heads, or the fighter bomber, still looks like a metal bird from the James Bond era, but it is in fact an information product. From the virtual manufacturing process, the real-time engine data it is firing back to Seattle where the engine was made, the GPS guidance system, the poor Salariat working on board, the atomic structure of the fan blade grown in a vacuum from a single crystal of metal alloy. It is an old thing made new by information. So let's summarise the cumulative effects. Information dissolves the price mechanism. It blurs work, blurs work and life. It delinks work and wages. It replaces hierarchy with network. It replaces ownership with utilisation. Let me dwell on this for a minute. Kenneth Arrow in the 1960s once said that when they started to think about what was information, i.e. it's not just a public good as, as we used to think about it in the 1940s and 50s, Arrow began to think, well, what is IP? He says, well, okay, what's going to happen if you have information property in a world where there's a free market and private ownership? The result will be the systematic underutilization of information. Um, so... Turn the, turn the, algebraically turn the sentence around and you can come up with a, full, a society in which there is full utilisation of information isn't going to be one where there's private property in, in information. And that's what information's doing. Carry on with the list. Ownership versus utilisation. 
It socializes knowledge. It enables idealized communities. It creates the new human being. If you make that list, it does begin to look, as the Harvard law professor, Yokai Benkler, describes it, as like a new mode of production. Put in Marxist terms, what this list tells you, it's the means of production, information, straining against the boundaries of the social relations of production. Of course, it's not a scenario Marxists in the 20th century would have recognized because it creates the possibility of a rapid transition towards abundance in some sectors. It is granular and spontaneous, uh, not the result of planning or human willpower. Uh, but I think, as I've described in the book, Marx would have understood this list. Because in a set of notebooks, not book, notebooks not published in the West until the 1970s, Marx, writing in 1858, imagined the emergence of what he called a general intellect, of knowledge become a, becoming a factor of, of production and a more so powerful source of productivity and indeed profit than the simple exploitation of labor. We do not know whether the cigar Marx was smoking had been inadvertently rolled with a different kind of tobacco. But it is completely different than the rest of his work, the Grundrisse, as it's called, the fragment on machines. It is, it is Marx imagining the possibility that, that technological development leads us to a phase where machines can be made for free and last forever. These, he said, would con constitute the highest form of capitalism, but they would revolt against the, against the social relations of production in capitalism. If you've got a society based on wages, I'm translating Marx from the English Marx, because it's really dense even, even, even for me to understand. I, I summarize, if you have a society based on wages derived from work, but you reduce necessary work to a minimum and promote unnecessary work, what you're doing, says Carl, uh, at 4 a.m. with his cigar in hand at uh, 1858, somewhere in Belsize Park, what you are doing is going to blow the foundations of capitalism sky high. I'm not so keen on blowing foundations up anymore, but I will settle for gradually replace. So I do think there is a rational grounds to argue that information technology, by corroding the price mechanism, by blurring work and life, by replacing hierarchies with networks, by triggering an upsurge in collaboration, non-managed work and non-market exchange, does lay the basis for the transition to post-capitalism. Now in the book, I do explore ways that we might do that. Um, the answers are not so important as asking the question. I'm not going to go into them here we maybe discuss them, because I want to end on something more prosaic and more relevant for this place, which is what does this mean for economics? It was the outraged conservative writer Tim Montgomery who commented on my book, quote unquote, this book is obsessed with obscure Soviet economists. Uh, um, yes, I am. Uh, um, but... but because it was they who had both the opportunity in theory and practice to grapple with transitional economics where the word transition does not simply mean, and of course it did not mean for them at all, transition towards low carbon economies. They were trying to manage the transition between a market and a non-market economy. And it went badly wrong, disastrously wrong, and created something worse than what they started out with. But one of the things they'd learned, of course, is that markets can't be suppressed in, in conditions of scarcity. That's, what they, that's 101 of Soviet economics. But the debates among them are also richer than that. And let's look at my diagram. 
to, to, to think about why. If you try and use money as a unit of measurement in Herbert Simon's uh, thought experiment, it doesn't come out like this. Because, think about it, what, if you use money instead of people as the thought experiment, uh, as the unit of measurement, what should happen, actually, mathematicians among you, I'm sure there are many brilliant ones, um, what should happen is that the green bobs, blobs and the red lines add up to the same area. That's what should happen, because the turnover of organisations can only be the same as the amount of money transacted between them, give or take the odd bit of embezzlement or misaccounting. Um, so it's not going to work if you do this using price and money. It only works is if, as Simon did, you, draw, you use the unit of measurement to be human beings. Uh, and if you, if you use money and you use, introduce the yellow lines, the Wikipedias, the Linux, the Apache, the non-managed spaces, the open source stuff, if you introduce it, you just can't match one world with the other. One world is measurable in money and value terms and the other world is only measure, measurable as a deduction from money and value. You can't work out uh, whether or not um, writing a, a thousand words on Wikipedia is, is a more valuable thing to do than growing some potatoes in an organic, uh, self-managed cooperative farm. You can't work it out. Why do we, wh where, does some of you know where this is, wh where do we know that problem from? We know it from Soviet economics. And we know it because it was not the Soviet economist, but in indeed Ludwig von Mises who pointed this out. Uh, if you do not have a common measurement between a market economy and a non-market economy, you, ca you, you cannot plan the transition from one to the other. It becomes guesswork, as von Mises says in the famous socialist calculation debate of which this building was the centre in the 1920s and 30s. The plan cannot decide to produce a tonne of wheat or a tonne of iron unless it knows what the common uni unit of measurement is between both. And if one is produced in the market and the other by the plan, you're just going to have guesswork and chaos. The post-capitalist project does not happen through centralised planning. As I hope you realise from what I said, for me it's a different route beyond capitalism. But it does face the same problem. How do you measure, predict, understand the dynamic interactions between the state, the market and this new sector, the non-market, which some people call the commons? I think... In the transition to come, it is all forms of economics derived from marginalism that is going to have the calculation problem. Uh, and this is not just a problem for the right. The left-wing economist, Anne Pettifor, stood up in St. Paul's Cathedral with me two weeks ago when we were discussing this and said to a developer who was from the open source community that he really ought to be asking for wages for everything that he produced. That's the only way eco economics, whether it's Marxism or marginalism, based on price, can deal with this. It must demand that the yellow world come into the world of green and red. But if you use what Simon did implicitly, labour as a unit of value, it helps you solve the problem of measurement. And Mises admits in the calculation debate, in the book Economic Calculation and the Socialist Commonwealth, that if the labour theory of value is correct, there is no calculation problem because it allows you to have a common measure of expenditure. Amounts of labour expended in the Soviet planned economy uh, and the market sector of the Soviet Union can be measured against each other, bearing in mind, of course, that skilled labour is just a multiple of unskilled labour in the so-called labour theory of value. 
Now, at the time of the calculation debate, most of the left-wing participants who might have been sitting in this hall or its predecessor or an earlier version of it, I remember the earlier version of this hall, actually, and they probably did sit in it, were not supporters of the labour theory of value. Lang, etc., did not support that. Simply, they, their point was to prove an intellectual proposition that the perfect plan is, in theory, given adequate computing power, just as good as the most efficient market. But that's not my concern. My concern is to understand and manage the long transition during which the yellow is going to uh, emerge and, uh, in some sectors, overwhelm the, the red and the green. And I think the best theoretical framework for doing this is to use and revive the labour theory of value. The labour theory is the only framework that allows you to measure a sector producing free stuff against a measure a sector producing for the market. And I'm not here saying the labour theory of value is better than marginalism for understanding price and capitalism. If it were, it, it would, modern econ econometrics and accountancy would have emerged out of Marxism and not from Walras. I'm sim simply saying that only the labour theory allows us to understand the process whereby the price mechanism corrodes. So like, most, like the most perceptive of Soviet economists, Preo Brzezinski, murdered in 1938 on Stalin's orders, it will allow us to understand as well that transitional economies have dynamics that are just as objective as the dynamics of a stable capitalism. The Soviet economics asserted that cause and effect had disappeared once rational planning came into being. Preobrzezinski, who's a Trotskyist from the left opposition, said no, a transitional economy has laws like capitalism has laws. Now, of course, everything I've said here could be wrong. Good, let's attack it. Capitalism might survive, but if it does, it'll have to find a new kind of market within the microcosms of human interaction, just as in the 1910s it created a new market for celluloid films and shellac records inside the leisure time and indeed the brains of the middle classes and the upper working class. The Marxist Rosa Luxemburg wrote in 1914 that all, markets, all new markets have been conquered, therefore capitalism is about to fall. In, it, in the time it took her to write the book, the number of movie theatres in Berlin went from 1 to 168. Uh, and capitalism, although it had a shaky few years in which she was murdered, did not fall. But capitalism has to come up to survive with a high-value synthesis, not a low one. If it survives simply by suppressing price mechanisms, reducing the reproduction mechanisms of capitalism to the asymmetries of power, which Stiglitz writes about, and information, it'll look more like neo-feudalism. And you know what? The more you interface with the avatars of neo-feudalism, the Silicon Valley bigwigs trapped in their coaches on the way to work as the residents of the Bay Area stone the coaches uh, because they don't like their gentrification. The Russian oligarch in his, his darkened limousine. The vast fake tanned Downton Abbey that surrounds the super rich. The more you interface with them, the more you realise how unhappy they are. They are un as unhappy as the fantasy overlords of Game of Thrones. A series in which nobody, to my knowledge, has ever smiled other than cruelly. <laughs> but post-capitalism will set them free.
Thank you very much indeed. Post-capitalism will set us free. So um, I open the floor to questions, and if you would uh, give your name and your affiliation when you ask a question, that would be very good. Can you wait for the microphone, which we have roving? I'll take maybe two questions at a time to start with, if that's good for you. Yeah. Um, and please do ask a question, not make a long statement. That would be good. So I see your hand first. Yep, at the back. Hi, my name is Rob. I'm not trained in economics and things. I'm here just out of kind of personal interest. Hello. Hello. So if I make a massive cock up in this question, you're just going to have to forgive me. But from a lay point of view, that whole thing sounded like a parable for the emergence of renewable energy um, and how economics and capitalism and the whole system under which we live can cope with things that were previously monetized being non-monetized. And it sounds like for your post-capitalist future to be realized, it has to be realized in tandem with a renewable and, re renewable and sustainable energy future. Now, my question to you is, do you envision that future happening without some kind of massive crisis of humanity to prevent or to loosen the grip of vested interests? Okay, thank you. Next question. I'm going to take two at a time. Somebody else want to ask a question? No. You do. <laughs> oh, there, there's a guy there. Oh, okay, I see somebody up there. Yep. There's a guy here as well. Okay. Um, hi, I'm Dan, and I'm doing a PhD in physics at Imperial College. Um, just because I happen to be sort of working in the area, I was wondering how much confidence you've got in the quotes uh, you gave from Deloitte that the exponential increase in information technology was showing no signs of slowing, because I'd certainly, I have some colleagues who are less optimistic, and it seems to me, if that isn't true, it might be difficult if we're depending on the sort of physical yeah. architecture to, for storing that information, how some of the things that you yeah. claimed were going to come about would come about. So I'm wondering whether you think that's likely, um, and if not, what, how that would affect it. Thank you. Well, well that, those are two excellent questions. Let me, let me come to yours first, sir. I mean, yeah, I, look, I should say one thing, that one of the reasons I don't spend a lot of time in these discussions talking about climate and renewable energy is because it, it, in the time since the, the, uh, the Stern report, it's gone from being almost left field to, to talk about it to, to, to mainstream. I think people, most people accept that we have a climate problem, that it's man-made, that we need to take action and that renewable energy is a big part of the action we need to take. But the interesting thing is, for me, again, sort of being in professional life for 20 years and beyond, observing how that trickled through, what I'm very aware of is how the discussions about information economics, Benkler, uh, Clay Shirky, etc., the people who've influenced me, uh, are very, 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 very non-acceptable, very non-mainstream. So I focus on the economics rather than the energy. But in the book, I say, once we've got our heads around the economic processes and dynamics that are taking place, of course, crashing into them is this huge, double, exogenous shock of climate and demographics. Climate and demographics could bankrupt quite wealthy states several times over unless they're dealt with. Now, I think one of the, how the two things are linked are this. I, think, I, I applaud the complexity of climate, both climate science and also climate modelling of, of effects. So NASA has a model with a billion data points that can, that can model, I think, the, a day of the world's weather 
in three days on a supercomputer. That's a, an amazing model. But that, that the same people will be working with a model of an economy that's like a train set. Energy requirement, guiding hand, input, output. That's, that's my problem with the way the climate industry deals with the crisis that's coming. Because the crisis that's coming is one, a crisis of the sustainability of, of, of the superstructure, of the finance system, of the pension system, of demographic ageing collapsing that, and of uh, what we now call stranded assets in the hydrocarbon industry collapsing that industry. That's one issue. But the other issue is, if I'm right, this is a hypothesis, I think it's grounded in, in enough evidence, if I'm right, then that's not, that's not our only problem. Our, our bigger problem is the, the non-emergence of value in the, in the future. So, I would love for there not to have to be a bunch of upheavals. I would love that for there to indeed be, it's not, it's not a copper when I write in the book, I would like there to be a liberal, a conservative, a social democratic, an anarchist, version of this, what I'm talking about, because I think it could easily, you could easily accept that the new terrain of, ec of economic strategy has to take account the emergence of the yellow. Um, but maybe I'm wrong, because, you know, we lost, yeah, we're going to lose a load of steel jobs uh, in this country, because governments care about banks and not steel works. We've already lost 27,000 solar panel jobs in this country, <coughs> not massively high value, but not uh, car washing. Uh, because government doesn't care about that either. Um, to you, uh, brilliant uh, set of questions about Deloitte. Yeah, okay. I think you might have, might have been able to tell from the tone of voice that I'm not completely sold on the exponentiality. No, it's exponential up to now. Um, exponentiality of, of these things, obviously, you, do le you, you reach the, a limit of the number of switches you can, you can burn onto a, a piece of silicon, uh, even though you, you, they keep squeezing out more and more uh, per year, uh, I, I understand what you do is you, you go upwards as you do when you run out of space in a, in a, in a, in a town in, in, in kind of Sim City, you build upwards. But maybe we don't need exponential improvements in, in, in the processing power storage and transmission mechanisms because you can also have if a true industrial revolution to me is all of that and then it does stabilise, and then by stabilising, it creates drag-and-drop solutions, like things called a, fa a factory, that once you know how to build one, you can build millions of them. And, and by stabilising, you get what Carlotta Perez calls a golden age, where everybody understands the technological paradigm. I think that's the most, that is the logical outcome of the, of the information revolution, but the problem we have to solve is what economic and social constructs are going to take place on that basis. I also think there's another really interesting thing that arises out of the, the implication behind your question, which is whether or not AI, robotics and machine learning actually, in the famous you know, uh, phrase of Ray Kurzweil, out reach a singularity and outstrip human consciousness. I'm on the side of that that thinks it won't because I think human consciousness has been an amazing uh, biological an adaptive mechanism on its own and can outrace machines. Uh, you know, Watson and, and the rest of it, this chess playing computer owned by IBM, it, it plays chess well because a lot of people in the real world have programmed it. Uh, I don't believe AI is a myth, but I believe AI can, we'll, we'll end up in a, in a symbiosis with AI and that might be the exponential thing that carries on rather than the number of switches on the chip. Thank you. Uh, there was a question somewhere down here that I didn't see originally. Was it him? Yeah? This guy in the middle. Yeah. 
Thanks, yeah. I just wanted to ask about goods that can be produced with sort of... Give your name and identification, please. Sorry, my name's Matt. I study philosophy at the LSE. Um, I wanted to ask about goods that are consumed with this sort of corrosive effect but aren't produced with the same corrosive effect. So the example of music, where it isn't produced through networks but through an individual but is consumed in that way, how can those kind of industries survive in the system? Answer if you want. Okay, uh, right in the center, second row at the top. Yes, you. <laughs> Hi, thank you. I'm Brandon. I'm a master's student in sociology here. Um, to your point about knowledge becoming socialized, uh, hierarchies turning into networks, I sort of want to ask you how you reconcile with some uh, examples, some rapid-fire examples I'll just present. Um, like Apple, their, sor- their software is closed source. Google has centralized information about all of us that we ourselves do not even possess. Yeah. Uh, Facebook, with their internet.org initiative, is really trying to carve out a new space of the internet that's totally under their control. State surveillance and censorship is totally trying to control information flows. Um, how do you reconcile these kind of very, uh, these instances of, of powerful entities trying to make hierarchies and control within these idealized communities that you're speaking about? So um, what I was talking about when I talk about tech monopolies, that they are the response to, to the, the, the phenomenon is the, is the corrosion of the price mechanism. The response is the, the emergence of tech monopolies. Remember, they're very unlike the monopolies that uh, Theodore Roosevelt was concerned about in the, in the progressive era in America. Those monopolies like Standard Oil or the American Envelope Company or Bell Telecom were, were constructed as a, attempts to rationalize scale in industrial production. That was the rationale for them. We can't deploy the technology. We can't make profit out of innovation unless you allow us scale. So the American Envelope Company had to be the only envelope company in America. So these are different kind of monopolies. They're there primarily to create a walled garden around intellectual property. Not only the property normally produced, as in the the commodities, the music tracks, but also the spillovers, the, the positive externalities, as we call them, created by my interaction with you on Facebook a third thing comes out of it. Theodore Weil, the, the boss of Bell Telecom, wrote about this as early as 1909, the network effect um, creating positive ex- externalities. This is the business model of the, of the corporations you mentioned. Now, I think, why, why can't it survive? Because, look, people like me are old enough to have seen what happened to the Soviet Union. Systems that have to be invented on the computer screens of lawyers and commissars every morning are not spontaneous, they're not granular. And look, the word Blackberry, it, it, look, in 10 years' time, the word Blackberry will mean to your kids a, a Blackberry, yeah? <laughs> because they'll, the Blackberries won't be around, but to my generation, it means something that you, first of all, parade around with on Wall Street and then later organise a riot with. Um, the, the Clay, Clay Christensen, the, the kind of guru of disruptive technology, uses the Blackberry as an example of why the once monopolistic uh, is now fallen, the Ozymandias-like. Um, so I think that um, that's the response. I, not only do, do I think that they can't survive, but I think the best among them, they are, I don't treat these corporations equally, uh, realise this. See, what's Google doing? It's disaggregating itself, and it's trying to stop itself, actually, being a, an all-powerful, stifling monopoly. The, the spin-off, the, the creation of Alphabet as a holding company, moving the Google asset as a sub-company, and all the 
speculative, innovative stuff separately, I think is a tacit recognition that maybe the, the future value comes in those parts and the, and the, the declining stabilised value is Google, is, is Google Inc. itself. I once interviewed, had the honour, in fact, to interview Larry Page and uh, Sergey Brin and, and asked them this kind of left-field question, what have you got left to do? This is before the IPO in the early 2000s. And Page said, I would like to build a machine that knows everything. So at which point my, my, my producer of the BBC went, yeah, what, what? And they kind of woke up. I would today say to him, knowing what I know now, you can't have that machine. What you've got is a machine that knows half of everything. Because while you can interrogate the data, I can't interrogate even my own data. Right? And when I can, when all of us can together, in other, when, in, other words, in other words, when Google becomes open source, then it has the potential to be a machine that knows everything. Until then, it is a machine for the systematic underutilization of information, as Kenneth Arrow so well put it. Now, to your question about music, um, yeah, look, what, what do we know about the way, way this happens? First of all, we know that creators are moving from the digital to the analog world. That's good, that's a rational response. Because whether it's me producing my documentary or it's you producing your, your disco track or your hip-hop, whatever. Yeah, what, <laughs> well, you can see he's got, he's got a beard. It may not be hip-hop. Um, yeah, yeah, the, the, that's, we're going to be very lucky to make, to, to make the minimum wage on 1.8 million plays on Spotify with our produce. Okay? That's true for me as a creator of video journalism as it is for a musician. Right, so what do we do? We move into the analogue world. Okay? Uh, you will know, because you maybe go to them, that places like wilderness, latitude, etc., are full of people not just doing music analogly, i.e. in person, but literature, and even people like me who write, just write non-fiction books. You know, basically, we are, I did write one novel, and in fact, the publisher of it is here, but yeah, it's not on sale. But um, look, people like me who write are, are there, doing what? Trying to earn a living. Because you move to the analog world to make a living. Um, that's good. It, what, does it, what does it tell us about, about the information world? That lots of things are automatable. And if you think about it, can you, could you, you know, can you automate Simon Rattle? Can you automate a, a, an orchestral conductor? Not really, no. Can you automate the London Symphony Orchestra? Not really, no. But can you produce music for film on a soundtrack that sounds as good as, all 90% as good as an orchestra that has never been near an orchestra because it's all digital, yes, you can. And in fact, most low to medium value movies right now are being made with digital music as soundtrack, not analog music, because it's cheaper. That is, the, the, the synthesizer is, an, is, an, is, is, a, is a virtual orchestra. So, so look, the point is I'm, I'm trying to make is that the production process itself is alive with information the, the market for it, that whatever production cost, the reproduction cost, is lawfully zero. So what do we do? I mean, I think we have to, this is actually the low-hanging fruit of, of this problem. You, you, you reward creation in a, in a spikier way. You don't go, as Universal's and Sony's lawyers do, around the world trying to lay claim to copyright for you know, Cliff Richard's songs, you know, still in Cliff Richard's copyright in the year 22... 55, when, when we're all mutated into aliens. We, we don't, you don't worry about that. I don't think the Beatles made their records to, so that it could be 99p on iTunes now. They did it because of the rewards, which were considerable in those days, of being a pop star. Uh, so you have to look at what the rewards are. Um, the, the, the bigger problems are structural and societal. Okay, uh, thank you. Um, 
Are there any copyright lawyers here? Uh, <laughs> um, so I won't ask you more cop- questions about the first copy costs of production, but um, I do have a question myself. Um, in your book, you have information making the difference and going through this transition phase, and all of these things, I think we can find they are happening. You're right. There's more and more yellow, um, in not just in pockets, but all over the place. But... You also talk about the need to resist the re-emergence of monopolies. Mm. And you say the state can set the laws in place and regulate to make sure these big monopolies don't come back in this, through this transition phase. And that's what makes me wonder. So my question is, what gives you confidence that the state as is is going to keep the tendencies towards monopoly and hierarchy and control? It's going to keep it. Or, uh, or let, it, let it, it go, yes. Well, it's not going to let it go. I mean, you, you know, I spend a lot of time in my life wandering around the uh, Ron Paul Schumann in Brussels uh, trying to get into buildings uh, that are considerably less uh, welcoming than British democracy. I don't say this as a Eurosceptic point. <laughs> I simply say it as a, it's just a, a feeling I have that uh, uh, as I wander around Ron Paul Schumann trying to get my camera into the Commission building and the Justice Lipsius building, I'm all too well aware that crossing the... The, the barriers of, the, of those buildings are people whose entire purpose in life is to keep those monopolies and to extend their privileges over the privileges of the citizens of the European Union. It's a fact that those, those companies are ex- expending huge amounts of lobbying power to just do just that, to say, you know, um, as, they will say, as Google's lobbyists will say to you, there's too much regulation on us in Europe. You should just let us do what we want. Or as Uber's lawyers did until the... Uh, Dutch police knocked on their door and raided them. Uh, you know, bring it on, as they said. You know, uh, we do what we want. Uh, you can, you have, it's for you to come up with laws that limit us. Uh, I think the tendency is wholly in the other direction. And uh, look, I'm not some kind of a Henry George style, you know, little capitalism advocate. It, scale is good. Um, now, I use the example in the book. You, c- you could say, look at, look at training shoes, look at sports shoes. Walmart, 30, 30 Nike $200 okay the space between that is the intellectual property the design and the brand interacting but separate things the design's good the brand's also good uh, because it does things no you should have a debate society can have a debate Um, is it good to have things that could be made for $30 being being sold for $200 and whence comes the market power of the corporations that do that. Do we feel good about those corporations? We tend to, because they tend to define us. Uh, I'm wearing a pair of R.M. Williams boots tonight, not Nikes, but they, I'm quite happy about that. It makes me feel better than wearing a bunch of non-branded stuff. Why? Because, on top of everything else, one can be pretty certain that very big brands whose... Who's value derived from their intellectual property are quite amenable to lobbying around things that can improve human life. And so in the book I discussed, you know, what would we lose if we, if we lost Nike as a brand? Would we lose the, the, the purchasing power that it exerts throughout 200-odd factories, 2,000-odd factories in, in Asia to, to enforce labour standards? Uh, so we can discuss things like that. So we're not, I don't, I'm not being anti-corporate here. I just think that if you've got scale, you have to ask in, for what ends is that scale being used. And I think the tech monopolies have you know, used their scale almost every time to, to create 
lock-in and tie-in and suppress innovation. You only have to know the story of Microsoft versus Linux in the 1990s in the public sector to know what I mean by lock-in and suppression of innovation. Okay, more questions. Um, woman right there. Oh, third row. Yeah. Put your hand up again, then you can see you. Right there, green the jumper. Yeah. No, further up. Yeah. She had her hand up first. Yeah. No, no, she did. <laughs> I don't know if it's a good question or not, but um, I'm Rebecca. I work in an NHS mental health service, and so I guess I was curious about how you see public services being run in the post-capitalist kind of way, because having you know li living in working in the NHS, it feels not at all like the yellow triangles. It feels like IT is not particularly present and uh, it's very hierarchical, state-led and if anything is shifting towards more kind of market marketization and kind of monopolies over certain products and selling and competition and the complete opposite. Mm. So I was kind of wondering, yeah, I was curious about your thoughts about that. Okay, next. Okay, up the top. I'm looking up the top because I see more hands up there but I'll look down here next. Uh, the woman right in the center with the white shirt on, blonde hair. <clears throat> um, my name's Georgie. I'm an architect. Yep. Um, I am looking at the moment at cooperative housing, and I was just wondering about whether um, there's more... So if, the, if information's facilitating the... This sort of this transition. Is there anything to be said for kind of culture, value, ethics, um, sort of human preference, changing, changing values, those things, um, in bringing about new ways of doing things? Because in the example of cooperative housing, it's very much people's desire for a different way of life, which is bringing about kind of attitudes of sort of commoning and, and all those things. So I was wondering about the kind of culture versus technology issue. Okay, thank you. Hand down downstairs. Anybody downstairs? Yep. Hi, thanks. Uh, my name is Dave, and uh, I work in the tech industry. Um, you talk a lot in the book about um, things like a guaranteed basic income. Um, and you didn't mention it tonight, and you do a good job in the book of trying to rehabilitate uh, Andre Gores from a couple of years in the wilderness. Um, with something like a guaranteed basic income, can post-capitalism come about without some form of state intervention? Okay. okay. Do you want to go? So the first question and this last question are linked, because it does, it, the, there's bad news, actually, for the, for the state and for the traditional left in If I Am Right, because while you can use the state to do a lot of the transition, i.e. the re-regulation, and even the provision, I'll discuss this in relation to housing in a minute, the, the fact is that if, if a, a non-market sector uh, basically swabs the market sector um, at some point in the future history of the world, then the, the state only derives its income from taxing the market sector, and therefore the state either has to evolve in a yellow direction, that is, in towards co cooperation, voluntarism and abundance, or you can't afford the state. And I do use the words wiki state in the book, which are a bit buzzwordy, but I can see, I think the post-capitalist state is, is more like the, that, the state which has withered away economically, to use the Marxist phrase, um, not simply politically. Um, so, yes, the transition to post-capitalism 
thinking big has to involve reducing the amount of necessary work done on the planet. And the transition plan can use ver various interventions to do that. One is to pr promote cooperative, cooperative and collaborative free stuff. The other is to use the state sector in, in, in the intelligent way that it was used in the mid-20th century. And so I, uh, and in relation to that, I come to, to your question at the top. Now, if you'll know if you're in the, NH if, if, if you're in, in the NHS uh, that um, a lot of health costs are related to social deprivation and there, are, there is socially determined ill health. Um, I think if people had more time and we spent more social resources on educating them and, and, and teaching them how to collaborate with that extra time, the management of a lot of diseases predicated on, 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 on poverty and deprivation and oppression would be uh, cheaper to do. That is, you know, a, a group of people managing a, you know, whatever it is, obesity, mental health, whatever it is, you can work quite well together and can try to, almost for free, because the interaction is for free. You're sitting there together, work together on your problems. That's a common way to do things in the, in, 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 in the epidemiology of, 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 of socially determined disease. But, of course, the NHS finds it really difficult to do that. Why? Well, the NHS is a... Um, it's a victim of its own success. It's a successful uh, blob, basically, um, that, uh, that, that has created a big, or did create, a big non-market area of the world in which uh, successive governments have tried to exert the power of the red line through it. But to go back to my other, if I had the clicker, it's the blue line in the NHS, as you described, the, the power diagram, that is the most important. I think the problem we're going to have in 100 to 150 years' time, if there is this long transition towards a non-market sector, is, is how do large, relatively successful organisations operating at scale take part in the story, take part in the revolution? Because most people in the NHS I know would love to be taking part in small-scale, innovative, free, networked projects, but they can't because you can't even prescribe what you want to prescribe because of targets. You can't even do anything in the way you want to do it because of targets. And you can't even do anything off the side of a desk on the 80-20 principle because there is no 20. There is only the frantic bed meeting in the morning to work out what to do with that one available bed that stands between you and Armageddon, isn't there? That's the issue. So to, to free up the public sector to take part in this, we have to literally free up resources to it. Um, and you could also say about the military, uh, that you can, or the cops, anything that is working to its limits, to a bunch of targets and hierarchies, is going to find it difficult to take part in this. And of course, here's the pernicious element of it. I think, because I'm a critic of neoliberalism, that neoliberalism's response to what is left of state provision and welfareism is to let it die. And how you let it die is by allowing it to become inefficient. So if I was sitting there trying to save the NHS, public service, social work, I would want to make it as much part of the networked world as I could. Um, there was this thing about housing, wasn't there, and culture and values. I think, yeah, I see a massive, a, a, I see a massive role for, 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 for what, what you call culture and values. I call it simply like a human revolution. But I, I think what digital 
networks allow us to do is to experiment in a different way. To allow, is they allow us to say, actually, let's, let's do a hundred different forms of practice and compare them to each other, maybe not even like for like. So like in, if we were in Germany, there'd be a lot of people here from the social economy movement that predates peer-to-peer, -peer, it pre predates the, the commons in, in, in creating you know, the, 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 the sort of organic voluntary sector uh, that the, the predates digital uh, commons. And, and they'd be saying, look, we do it this way. I, I went to a big conference in Germany yes, uh, two, two months ago where the, the social economy people, which were from the hippie era, they're from more from kind of my youth than, than, than yours, and, and then the digital people were talking cross-purposes a lot of the time about how do you solve things like, well, what do you do about finance? The social economy people were like, you know, credit unions, whereas the digital people were, you know, peer-to-peer -peer finance, cut out the middleman, create uh, sophisticated instruments using the blockchain. And the social economy guys are going, you know, not on my organic farm, you know, that's not going to happen. So I think that, that, that just illustrates the fact that I think we've got to just, I don't know what the answer is, so what I, I'm sure out there, lots of answers are there. But the one thing I would stress is, until now, or not until now, until people like me started to try and reframe this argument, all this stuff, whether it's voluntary work, whether it's corporation, whether it's an organic farm, whether it's peer-to-peer, -peer, whether it's Wikipedia, was seen as a kind of niche, a niche within capitalism that is not really relevant to economics. I think it's like this. Those of you who like um, Hilary Mantel's book, Wolf Hall, or have watched the series with, with Mark Rylance, will remember maybe a brilliant scene where he gets this uh, aristocrat called Harry Percy, uh, who's a dissolute, and he's kind of got him by what the medieval equivalent of the short and curlies. He is basically saying to him, look, I can dismantle your world. You think the world is about you know, suits of armour and jousting tournaments and castles uh, and, and knighthoods, whereas I know uh, that the world is... I can switch that world off with, with one secret letter to a banker in Amsterdam because the world is about money. That is the confrontation between feudalism and capitalism, early mercantile capitalism in the 16th century. And, and I think there is a parallel that we are at the point where we have to say to people who don't see this as, as a coming issue that, look, the world, there is yellow in the world. There is the spontaneously occurring collaborative economy in the world. And it's not an accident. It's not irrelevant. And it, we can't turn the other, the other bit off yet. We're not strong enough to do that, nor would we want to yet. But you, the, the modern Harry Percy, have to see it. Otherwise, at some point, it's going to come and bite you in the ass, as we might say in an American uh, gangster movie. Right, and with that, um, do you want to take any more or do you think we're nearly I, done? I actually? think people are kind of done, aren't they? But yeah, yeah okay. let's, let's... I think... I think because, <laughs> because, you could, because my, I will always answer your questions on Twitter and try, I'll even follow you so you can DM me. Okay, so. I, I think that maybe... I, I think this is fascinating. For all of those who want to go read more as well as buying a copy of the book and reading the book, there is a whole growing field of transition economics. And I think what's interesting about transition economics is that it puts the people back into economics. And it also occasionally puts social values back into economics. And I think that's really important. And it's all about the coexistence of markets and non-market. And we really do not know how to see into the future and understand what these crises mean. And I think your book goes a long way to beginning to get us to think about this seriously and not simply think we just carry on as we are. We don't. So join with me in thanking Paul for a really stimulating <laughs>